I'm Cassie Hilbron, and this is the Cook It Real Good podcast, bringing you shortcuts to success in the kitchen. Today's episode is all about the chemistry of cooking. I chat with Amber, a molecular biologist by training who currently dual wields the worlds of wildlife research and chef work. She asserts that the two are more interconnected than you would think. Amber got interested in food science in university during the peak of the molecular gastronomy craze and has since found the realities of yeast, starches and caramelization even more fun. On her blog, Twists and Zests, she focuses on seasonal food and drinks with a dash of science. Just enough to be helpful and not make your eyes cross with technical details. (laughs) Amber believes understanding the whys of cooking can help anyone gain more proficiency in the kitchen. And that all of those tedious steps are much easier to bear when you know how much better they will make your food. Amber uses the example of bread making today to take us through the chemistry behind cooking. This is a fabulous episode for everyone who's always been interested in the science behind what we do in the kitchen. You can literally hear my mind ticking over, taking in all of the information that Amber gives me in this episode. It's a lot and it's fantastic, but this is a jam-packed science lesson. So one you might want to say for a minute when you can focus. I know that we all love to listen to podcasts while doing a million things, but this one I'd probably suggest to take a minute and listen in. This week's recipe of the week is my cucumber bites. I love snacking. I can't get through a day without snacking. And uh, of late, I've been really enjoying whipping up an easy guacamole and eating it on top of cucumber slices, cucumber rounds, and I call them cucumber bites. Um, It's healthy, delicious, and so easy to make. And so if you haven't tried it yet, I think you should. Um, I've got the recipe of, you don't really need a recipe to cut up cucumbers, but I've got the recipe for the guacamole and the cucumber bites recipe. And I'll put that on today's show notes. If you want to visit those, it's cookitrealgood.com slash 37. Now let's dive in. Hi, Amber. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. I am very excited to talk to you and pick your brain. But before we get into it, would you mind letting me know if you've had a recent kitchen fail? Uh, The most spectacular one I can think of recently, just in the amount of time planning that uh, got wasted, was... I had picked a whole bunch of plums from the backyard. This was the first year we'd managed to get plums from the backyard. I went to make a plum jam and totally burned it because I got distracted and just left it on the stove. Oh, no. (laughs) And we didn't have any more plums from the backyard. So I was very disappointed in myself. Oh, that's even worse. Bummer. (laughs) But I could get plums from elsewhere, but it's not quite the same. No, there's nothing like, yeah, freshly grown, you made them plums. Oh, man. Yeah. I, uh, I too have been guilty of the leaving something on the stove and forgetting about it. <laughs> yeah. 
we just live such busy and distracted lives, I think, these days that it's hard. Like, you don't want to stand in the kitchen for 20 minutes while you're making something, but also it's kind of needed. <laughs> Especially if you're doing something like a jam or a chutney that just needs time to boil down. You want to go make use of that time. Yes. But then you forget it for that extra <laughs> half hour and it's done. Oh, no. All right. Well, next year, hopefully, you can get some nice yes. fresh plum jam. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, Amber, you have studied molecular biology, and whew, I think you're the first scientific background I've had on the blog, um, on the podcast, sorry. <laughs> and um, I'm really excited to get into today's chat, but could you tell us a bit about molecular biology for, I guess, the layman, because I certainly don't know much about it. So molecular biology from the overall standpoint, it's the point where chemistry and biology meet. So you're looking at things from the standpoint of how different chemicals and things interact and how they interact in the environment, uh, the downstream effects of pesticide use in agriculture. But then also in food, you hear about it most in terms of molecular gastronomy. So how can you make two different food items react together in such a way that they create this new kind of thing or you're taking flavors or making strange shapes out of a food that you wouldn't think could make that shape. So the biggest ones people know of are spherification. So you're using sodium alginate and a calcium carbonate solution. So the sodium alginate, when it's submerged in a calcium carbonate solution, turns into a gel. And that's how you get the little drops of gel things. It's using that chemical knowledge to create those kinds of things. Or in a less sophisticated one is actually things like liquid nitrogen because that's just straight up freezing something. But it's freezing it in a certain way that you're not adding ice crystals. So if you make an ice cream with liquid nitrogen, there's no extra water vapor introduced to the solution. So you don't get the same crystals of ice. And also, because it's freezing so fast, things don't have time to form. Those crystals don't have time to form. So a liquid nitrogen ice cream is going to be extra creamy, even if you're not using uh, a churner. It's also a lot faster. It's too fast for you to even use an ice cream churn. But when you do those, those are a little more complicated. There's actually molecular biology going on in your food from the basic standpoint of using yeast to raise bread. That's biology. But then also to create the gluten, which creates the structure of the bread, that's molecular. And you, the forces you are exerting on it are creating that structure and changing the molecular structure of that product. But you don't know it because it just happens. But once you look at it and understand it, it's a lot of fun because you know what you can do to make things have a different result. And 
understand it in a more predictable manner, which lets you play a little bit more with your food. I was going to ask you about, is there a, um, a more common example of the molecular gastronomy? Because I know that there's like obviously restaurants that do the, yeah, the spheres and the beads and everything. But um, yeah, the nitrogen ice cream is definitely something that's relatable because I know we have a few uh, ice cream stores now that use the nitrogen. I don't know if you guys have them over there, but it's now it totally makes sense why they have them because uh, there's nothing worse than those water crystals that get into ice cream and make it a bit. Uh. <laughs> yes. So it's, I mean, that's really fun, but that takes a lot more than a lot more chemical knowledge, a lot more safety knowledge. Trust me, you do not want to get liquid nitrogen anywhere on your body. Uh-huh. Uh, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> um, and than access to things that most people don't have or are really expensive or why would you want to use those for just making food for your family? Yes. But you can invent and experiment using molecular biology and the understandings of chemistry and biology to create something good. It doesn't look fancy like it came out of a chemistry lab, but it, you are taking your actions to change the scientific properties of something. All right. That, that definitely makes sense because, yeah, you're right. We're not going to have liquid nitrogen at home. <laughs> so let give me an everyday example of something that we can do at home to play around with, I guess, the basics behind this. Well, bread is my best example because it uses almost every principle so, so things that have an intense amount of scientific principles behind them are caramelization. So on bread, you end up using what the caramelization reaction is called the Maillard reaction. I can talk about that a little bit more to create that nice brown crust on a loaf of bread. You're also using yeast. The yeast is growing. All the things that impact yeast growth are going to impact the resultant product of your bread. Gluten. You need to form gluten. Gluten doesn't just exist. The gluten proteins exist, but the gluten bonds don't exist unless you add outside products to them and outside force. You have to add manual action to create the gluten bonds. Then there's things that you do that would inhibit those gluten bonds. So if you add things like butter and sugar to your bread, they're going to not have as much gluten forming, gluten bonds forming. But sometimes you want them, sometimes you don't. So it's really important to know what you want your final product to be. And then using steam, how does the yeast pockets that develop and then that air they've released, how does that expand when it's exposed to heat? Those are all really integral things in making a loaf of bread that you don't really think about doing, but you do all the time. Absolutely. And that when you talk about it like that, 
We definitely wouldn't think of it like that. You would just be going, I'm going to be adding the yeast, flour, water, salt, and it happens. So we don't really think about the background of it and why it's having that reaction. So let's start, which would be the first element that would be integral to the bread making process? I think the best place to start is yeast. Yes. You read my mind. (laughs) Yeast is this basic property. So you can have quick breads. There's different raising elements you can do, but most breads have yeast. So the purpose of yeast is just to create that rise. How's the yeast creating the rise? The yeast is eating the starches and the sugars that are in the flour to create ethanol, alcohol, and carbon dioxide. Uh, I'll typically refer to it as CO2 simply. So if when you have yeast going, how fast it produces that air is dependent on a lot of things. So you want the air. The ethanol gets cooked off, so it's completely irrelevant here. It's, of course, far more important if you're doing distilling or brewing. But here, it's unimportant. It just gets cooked off. But the CO2, that's created. That is trapped. Talk about the trapped properties in a minute. But what yeast needs, yeast needs heat. So... It exists in a certain range of temperatures that are really important. So you don't want something too hot that kills the yeast or too cold that makes the yeast go hibernate. So if you freeze yeast, put it in the refrigerator, it's going to hibernate. And the colder it is, the slower it's going to go. The warmer it is, before it gets to that too hot point, the faster it's going to go. And that means more CO2 being produced very quickly. Then when you do have a slow growth, you've got other chemicals being produced. They're produced in really small amounts, but these are the chemicals that add flavor. So when you talk about flavor development in bread and a slow rise for flavor development, you're talking about the things the yeast is producing when it's right when it's growing when it's rising slowly so if you speed it up you get a lot of co2 really fast but you don't get a lot of these extra compounds you go slow it's going to take a longer time but you get more flavor because of those other compounds but you need a balance how, what you're doing with the yeast, with what you're doing with everything else in the bread, which is where that structure comes in. Okay, that definitely makes sense. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, so that structure, of course, is gluten. Gluten structure. Flour, wheat flour in particular, and a couple other flours, contain gluten proteins. There are several different kinds of gluten proteins. What they exactly are is pretty irrelevant, unless you're an absolute science nerd like me. (laughs) 
But what is important is when they're dry, they just exist. They're not doing anything. When you add water and mix them up and expose them to each other, they create these long chains, which create this structure. So when you're adding the water to the dough and then kneading it, you're creating a structure. You're creating a lattice network of all these gluten bonds in relation to each other. And when you're kneading the dough, you're moving the different portions of the gluten bonds around in relation to each other. This also helps move yeast around so that all of the dough expands the same way. But creating that gluten structure, you're moving it around, you're basically introducing the different gluten molecules to each other. And then they get to be buddies and create this big group. So when you want a really tough gluten structure, that's going to support a much greater rise in your dough. So, because you need a really tough gluten structure to capture those CO2 bubbles that are being released by the yeast. If you don't capture them, it's just going to rip the top of the dough and then they escape and you don't get a rise. So when you've got something like a ciabatta dough, if you don't have enough gluten structure, you won't be able to capture those really big air bubbles that form. Mm -hmm. But if you've got too little gluten structure there, it just totally runs because a ciabatta dough is really liquid. So the water is overwhelming the gluten at that point. So it's a very fine balance. So that's when how much gluten that's in your original uh, flour is important, which is why we talk about high gluten flours versus low gluten flours and why you need to add extra things to a non to a gluten-free dough mm-hmm. uh, to a gluten-free flour mix if you want to still be able to capture those bubbles. So if we talk about no-knead bread then, because I know that that's popular, but it can still have um, yeast in it, what happens then? Is that keeping a high gluten structure or...? So it doesn't have as high of a gluten structure. What you're doing then, you'll notice that all recipes for no-knead bread require the use of a Dutch oven or some sort of enclosed baking mm-hmm. vessel. You're doing, you're exposing more liquid and basically forcing more water to be exposed to all those gluten proteins by pressure okay, and yep. getting that in there rather than your manual action. And you'll also notice that you can't create a sandwich loaf with a no-knead bread because no. that sandwich loaf has a really, what we call a regular, regular structure. It's got a lot of little tiny air bubbles and they're all about the same size. When you've got an irregular structure, you've got a bunch of different sized air bubbles. You got those one, those big craggy 
spaces that are great for dripping butter or oil into. And that's an irregular structure, and that's created through less gluten structure, less kneading, because you're not creating these little tiny gaps in the dough for the air to expand in, and all of it concentrates into one area that's got that gluten structure. Okay, that makes sense, definitely, because I was wondering how that works if you, the kneading obviously plays a part in, I guess, getting those gluten proteins to come out, and um, yeah, no, that's really interesting about the pressure cooking. So, just stirring the dough, just mixing the water in, does create some gluten bonds. That happens in any big product. That's why with muffins, it's always so just mix everything just enough that the flour is incorporated because you don't want it to get tough. Mm-hmm. Those gluten bonds are what's making it tough. The more you mix, the more gluten bonds you're creating. Mm, so when yes. you make the, so if you want something that's a tougher product, mix more. If you want something that's a more tender product, you want to mix less. That definitely makes sense. And yes, I uh, I hate when I get tough muffins. <laughs> Good example. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so we've covered gluten, yeast. What's next? Uh, inhibiting gluten bonds. So on the subject of things that aren't tough, well, nice little tender muffins, there's a lot of things that actually stop the gluten bonds from forming. Okay. One of the biggest things is fats. So if you add a lot of fat to uh, your baked good, if you're making a brioche bread or something, that's going to be a lot more tender than a standard crunchy French loaf. Because you're adding butter, you're adding milk, uh, and then eggs as well because you've got that fat from the yolk. Those things, they inhibit gluten bonds. Just think of it in the fact that water and oil don't mix. It's a hydrophobic reaction. So if the water can't move, it can't reach the other gluten proteins, and they can't form gluten bonds. Mm -hmm. But if... So so if you're adding a lot of fat, you're going to inhibit. So when you've got just a little bit of fat, those low-fat food products, one of the reasons why they're frequently so sweet is the other reason that gluten bonds can be inhibited is sugar. So you want extra sugar to inhibit the gluten bonds because that creates a network structure of its own that's not tough. But the fat is going to create a much more tender product than a high sugar content will. And there's a few other things that will inhibit gluten bonds. Like I said, a lack of manipulation of the product stops stirring, essentially. And then adding more fats. So if you make a, let's say, what's the best example I can think of? Probably some sort of coffee cake or cream cake where you're adding 
cream and butter and milk, all of those things, that's going to be really tender because the gluten just can't form into those bonds. But it has enough structure and it's going to be really crumbly. So in doing all of this, you're always balancing it. So if you're making a brioche dough, if you're making bread that's going to have a lot of fat in it from eggs and butter and whatnot, you need end up needing to knead the dough more to counteract the effects of the fat, which is why brioche dough is so intense. Mm -hmm. Brioche, all the fat and everything also inhibits the growth of the yeast just because it limits the rate at which the yeast can get to the sugars and the starches. So there are multiple aspects to that and all those things. But if you want to kind of speed yeast up, give it some actual sucrose sugar which is a lot easier for the yeast to digest and that'll get it really kick-started and speed it up. So if you balance fat and sugar, you can have a faster rise with yeast. Okay. That, yep. That makes sense. So with the fats, when you're adding those in, because they do stop the CO, was it the CO2 and the gluten? The, the gluten bonds from yeah. forming because they, interfere with the water so then you're going to need to manipulate it more to counteract that that makes sense yes yes okay and sugar wise so sugar has it inhibits gluten formation to some extent but it also speeds up yeast Mm -hmm. so the yeast really likes eating the sugar it's a really easy food source for the yeast just think of yeast as these little round, uh, dating myself a little bit, uh, little round Pac-Man. I knew you were going to use so, that. I was like, I bet you'll say Pac-Man. <laughs> <laughs> they look like that under the microscope, too. You can't help but use that analogy. <laughs> it's little round Pac-Man who are going around and they're eating the easiest thing they can find. The starch, it's there but they've got to work a little harder to get at it. Whereas if you go with, and starch being pretty much your general structure of flour. Okay. Starch breaks down into sugar. Uh, But if you just give them the really easy sugar, they're going to choose that first. They're going to grow really fast. And they're, because while they're growing, they're actually multiplying. So if you kickstart that multiplication process, you've got more yeast going, eating the starches, which is going to speed up your rise. But you also have a problem of gluten structure then. So you don't want to add too much sugar because that's just going to make your dough really brittle. Mm -hmm. About sugar, sugar makes things brittle because it caramelizes. But if you add sugar, you're also going to get a much darker crust because of that caramelization. And that caramelization is what we call the Maillard reaction. M-A-I-L-L-A-R-D, Maillard. <laughs> <laughs> Which 
is a fancy name for proteins and sugars reacting to make things really flavorful. So uh, onions caramelizing is the Maillard reaction. Uh, meats caramelizing is the Maillard reaction. So that crust that forms on meats as you sear it, that's the Maillard reaction. And the same thing happens in the bread. I've, I keep saying the gluten pro- proteins, you have protein in your bread. It's not the same kind of protein we typically recognize, but it is protein. And that caramelizes with the starches, which are turned into sugars. When all of those are exposed to heat, you get that caramelization and that really flavorful crust on the top. I'm going to pull out the Maillard reaction next time I'm browning my meat and sound very smart at the next barbecue I'm at. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one to go with, um, especially because there's a lot of things if you want to be really cool when you're doing it with caramelizing onions, mm-hmm. you can add a little bit of baking soda and then it's, I am speeding up the Maillard reaction in my solution. Here. <laughs> so the, the baking soda speeds up that reaction the same way heat does, but even more so, and actually makes the reaction happen much more evenly. So if you want really evenly caramelized onions, just a little bit of baking soda. Oh, wow. So, I love that. So hack. bicarbonate is the um, duct tape of the molecular biology world. Okay. Sodium bicarbonate does a lot. Wow. Yeah, no, I never would have thought to add it to caramelized onions, but next time I am doing that. (laughs) (laughs) It's the reaction. Can't, can't go around it. So, yeah. So when you're doing those things, you're creating this really flavorful caramelized crust. And then you get your crust, your chewy interior, and that's your loaf of bread. Who would have ever thought, aha, you definitely, but <laughs> for the rest of us, who would have thought there was so much going on behind the scenes? Now, I always do say baking's a bit of a science, which is why I think it's so easy to mess up because <laughs> we, um, if you forget an ingredient, you put too much or too little, it can make a big difference. But I think that understanding these elements kind of makes me see what the difference is between the breads even. Like I've never stopped to think why a sandwich loaf is different to a brioche, but they are very different. (laughs) Yes, it's – and once you know those, it helps you experiment a lot more because I could just go into my kitchen right now without having a recipe and I know I want to make – a really uh, craggy loaf that's got a lot of pockets in it and a really hard crust. So the things I want to do, I want to use a really high gluten flour, use a lot of water so that all a lot of gluten bonds are formed without me manipulating it much, because if I manipulate it too much, I'm going to get a much smaller set of little bubbles. But 
then I need to give it a lot of time to rise. I don't want it to rise too fast because otherwise that lack of mechanical manipulation on it is going to cause that very fragile gluten structure to burst if it rises too fast. So making that loaf of bread, I want a really high gluten flour. I want a lot of water and I want a very small proportion of yeast. It's going to take a really long rise and that will result in that really craggy loaf. So without even having a recipe that says, oh, I need this exact number of grams and this exact number of milliliters, I know my proportions to create what I want. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it so much fun is because I'm not trying to create an exact match for a French baguette. I just want a good bread that matches the consistency I want. So a lot of people get hung up on this idea that bread's so difficult, you have to be so precise. Well, once you understand it, once you know why you're doing the different steps, for one thing, I find it makes taking the time to do those steps a lot easier and more understandable. I get really impatient if I don't know why I'm doing something. But but then also, I know what result I'm going to come up with. And I can change that result by changing something that I'm doing, by adding something. If I want, I don't know, a little bit crunchier of a crust, I'll add some sugar to that recipe. Uh, then... Of course, with bread, there's that steam in the oven, which is a whole other subject on how that impacts everything. But we'll, we'll skip that part. That's just going to take way too long. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that. I like that. And you could probably start, when you are looking at recipes, you can probably start to understand what uh, end result you're going to get without them even describing it by looking at the ingredients and how much of everything there is, how much kneading there is, how much rising time there is. Yes, definitely. When you think about, and you, when you're comparing a couple recipes, if you're looking for, uh, two recipes for a scone, how much fat there is in the scone is going to tell you how the scone is going to turn out. Is it going to be a flaky scone? Is it going to be a crumbly scone? How is that being worked in? It's if you're adding the egg, that's going to distribute that fat a lot more. So you're adding that egg yolk or you're adding cream. That's a liquid. So that's going to distribute throughout the flour. Whereas uh, grated or finely chopped butter, it's going to make little pockets of those fats. So when you're working with them in that way, it's where are those gluten bonds going to be formed? If it's if the fat's distributed, I'm going to have very short gluten bonds, so I'm going to have something that's crumbly. If I've got little pockets of fat, gluten bonds are going to form around them, so I'll have something that's flaky. That's another great example. And yeah, I, again, didn't, didn't, wouldn't have had the foggiest idea of where to start of what would make the difference between the crumbly and the flaky scones. Yes. And the... Once you understand those, I mean, there's so many more things than what we've had the time to talk about here. It, it's just a great 
thing to study more because you don't have to know all of it all at once. A little bit here and there is nice because it adds to your knowledge. It gives you a bit more confidence on what you're doing in the kitchen and lets you do that experimentation. Now, Amber, you talk a bit about this on your blog, don't you? You talk about the science behind your recipes. Yes, I do. Uh, So most of the stuff I do is just the seasonal food products. But for me, because my science background is so integral to my cooking, I think it's really important that even though you don't think of, oh, all natural foods being related to really hard science, it is. What I'm doing is telling you a little bit, just a bit here and there, hopefully breaking it down into digestible bites and giving you a little bit you can add to your toolbox of things so that you can experiment with the things that are available to you and create the kind of product you want. And it's a lot of fun. And I get really excited about talking about it and just... It's so much fun when I talk to someone who has no idea about any of it and they get really excited because they're really interested in learning the science aspects that seemed so boring when you're in school because (laughs) no one talks about anything that makes it relevant. I mean, who knew that you'd want to know organic chemistry to make a good scone, but it's still applies and you can either know it from okay butter makes a flaky scone or know it because well little patches of fat is going to create a flaky scone versus distributed fat and that's to me that's so powerful to for someone to be able to take that knowledge and apply it and be able to enrich their lives enrich their food with the little things i love that and it's a unique way um that a lot of other food bloggers don't well it's an element they can't probably talk to but i uh, i think it's yeah it's a point of differentiation where can people find you amber so i my blog is at twistsandzest.com uh, and then i'm also on instagram twists and zest and on Facebook, Twists and Zess. Uh, so both of those are at Twists and Zess. Uh, technically, I'm also on Twitter, but I really don't use it. So <laughs> <laughs> not really uh, worthwhile. But I did also, um, if you want a bit more of a transcribed discussion on gluten formation, I did just put out a great big post. It's been in the work for ages trying to make it nice and condensed and still understandable uh, and for a nice uh, chewy but thin pizza dough so but it's got a lot of gluten discussion so maybe uh, for those who are more visual learners (laughs) that might be a little easier yeah, let's link it in the show notes. And um, I was actually eyeing off that pizza before we got on this call. So I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm in. I'm definitely in, even for the chat beforehand. <laughs> cool. 
Yes. Well, thank you so much, Amber. I think I'm going to have to get you back on here to talk a bit more about maybe another topic sometime because this has been really interesting, a different take and something that I am not exposed to every day. So I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That would be so much fun. I, Like I said, I love talking about this to people who are interested and I I love teaching people who want to learn just a little bit more and I think sharing that knowledge is so much fun and I can learn something and other people can learn something and that that's what makes all this so enjoyable and such a pleasure to be on the show awesome thank you so much <laughs> thank you It was so fun chatting with Amber about some things that I really had no idea about. I am someone who probably like either skipped over if I could or slept through most of my science lessons in school. And so a lot of these things aren't natural to me, but I do love that Amber took the time to explain them in terms of things that we can relate to. So if it was bread making or in the earlier example of the nitrogen made ice cream, there's stuff that I see like every day and bread making is something that I've tried before. And so all those little steps just start to, to come into place. Like, why do we do them? What's the reaction we're looking for? Uh, it really opens your eyes. And then as you continue to cook, those are the things that can kind of underpin what you're doing. And when something doesn't work out, it's easier to figure out why, because you know what reaction you were looking for and what you didn't get. So yeah, I really hope that you enjoyed that episode and um, you can visit Amber's blog for some more sciencey explanations behind her recipes, which is fantastic. That's it from me. I hope you have a great week and don't just cook, cook it real good. Bye.